What an odd character. Yeah, she's this two-year-old girl who has, like, the mind of an adult. And, and, and more than that, she's, like, all-seeing, and she has all this knowledge. And I hope so badly that we get, like, a full novel-accurate Alia in the film. It's, like, walking, I can't imagine they like could have everything. a two-year-old do it. But, yeah, they could have someone very young. So, something, <laughs> figure, figure out how to make it, like, convincing. But... <laughs> Get Andy Serkis in there. <laughs> yeah, like mocap a child or something. Yeah, yeah. That would be real weird. Welcome, friends, to episode 203 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the final third of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, Dune. So we're back in our usual state here. I am back in Oregon, and we are doing it uh, over over Skype, uh, as we've done in the past for the vast majority of our episodes. Um, however, I did pick up some sort of bug uh, not COVID, Got, gotten tested, a lot of people I know who I've been in contact with have been tested, everybody's negative, so pretty certain it's not that, but I think I got a cold or something traveling. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't get sick because we were sitting two feet from each other when we recorded, you know? <laughs> like, kind of bizarre. Uh, it's, it, it feels a lot more like the old days of, of, you know, getting colds and stuff and like some people get it, some people it just passes right by. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But um, regardless, it is affecting my voice a little bit. So if I sound a little bit off, that that's what's going on with that. Um, but we have finished out Frank Herbert's novel. Um, this has been a project that has been on the horizon for us for a very long time. And here we are at the end of it. And it's a little bittersweet, honestly, the end of the book. You know, I'm, I'm very excited for the movie. That's keeping me uh, keeping me positive because I'm I'm super like even more than I was now. I, I'm I'm stoked for this film, but um, yeah, I'm I'm just curious what your what your feelings were reading the the last third of this book. I, I think this book lived up to everything that I wanted it to be. It was unexpected in many ways. Like I think that I should have picked up more on like cultural osmosis of like what happens in the book, and I hadn't, which was good for for my experience reading this story. It was just it just ended up being a different kind of story, but I appreciated it for that. And although it is like very influential, you can tell the things that have inspired it. And we've seen a lot of these like tropes in in sci fi before. And because obviously, like the things that came after we've seen and you're saying it was that inspired it like Princess of Mars, but then also that were inspired by it both ways. Yeah, I yeah. was more talking about things that we've seen since that, that yeah. clearly were, were like inspired by. But yeah, yeah. Um, in but in its own way, it, it remained really fresh all the way through. I really enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the world. I do. I, I want to acknowledge at the top that like Paul is a fascinating character, but is such an archetypal like wish fulfillment character like to mm -hmm. the end. You know, I think that's to be expected for this time period when this sci-fi story is being told. But all the other, the world that's built around the other characters, the religion aspects, the ecology aspects, like all of it, it was so fascinating to me. And it's just a world that like I want to live in more, which, you know, coming to the end of this story, which was kind of abrupt, like I'm not going to lie, it was pretty, pretty quick. And I'll get into like my story of that uh, in a second. But 
you know, coming to the end, I want more. And I think that's something that, of course, you always want to do is leave people wanting more. And there's many other novels, so we might check those out in the future in some way or another. Especially if uh, the sequel film that uh, I know Denis Villeneuve has says he wants to make, right. um, if that ends up getting made, I'd be really curious to see if... Um, I- I'm just going to be curious to see if the movie we're about to watch is going to cover all of the events here or not. I have a theory. I, don't, I haven't looked into anything because I've been trying to avoid as many spoilers as possible. But I have a theory that I know exactly where the for this movie that we're about to see ends. Okay, let's let's uh, discuss your theory about the film at the end of this episode. Okay. I think uh, that kind of leading to the movie because I think that'll be fun to end on, right? A couple of theories about what we might see in the movie. Yeah, I wanted to talk about like how this this story ended so quickly for me. And it's because it was Paige Turner and I was going through and I was really enjoying a lot of these like climax moments that were popping up here at the end that we're, we're getting with this third part. Uh, and I felt as I'm reading the book, there's such a solid chunk of paper left. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, look how much is left there. This is such a great. And then like I didn't realize at the end of the book, there were appendices mm-hmm. that were that were creating a bulky amount of paper. So I got to the end and I was like almost heartbroken. Like I thought, <laughs> you know, I was I was satisfied, but it, it was just this funny moment where I was like, that's it. I need more. Yeah. I, it, it, so we've covered what Lord of the Rings has appendices right at the back. Right. Um, and I just didn't even think to look. Yeah, I, and I know Wheel of Time, which uh, we're we're hoping to cover Eye of the World at some point here when when the show's coming out, and that definitely has appendices in the back. So it's something that I was kind of used to from reading epic fantasy, but it's been a while since um since I've had to deal with them, and I don't know. I want to ask you, like, how do you feel about them? Do you ever? I mean, clearly you didn't use them because you didn't even know they were there. But if you had known they were there, would you have felt? inspired to flip to the back and the glossary of characters and like look up stuff i like that it's it's like an option for you to go check it out but personally i've never been the person to do that i like to check them out at the end because i do feel like you can very easily slip into spoilers in the appendices that is definitely true you never know like what point it's being written from is it like being written with the assumption that you finished the book is it being written with the point that with the assumption that you're in the middle of it so if you open it up at the beginning are you going to get some spoilers yeah um, my feelings about them have changed over time. When I was younger, I I used them somewhat. Like I liked that I could flip to the back and remind remind myself who some side character was. Um, read about like the magic system and the different you know orders because I'd be like, who is this order? I want to know more. So I'd go look them up, and then I'd feel like I was kind of in the know when I went back to the narrative. I was like, okay, now I know who this group is. I'm gonna go read the book now, and I know this. But as I've gotten older and read more. It kind of feels like cheating a little bit. Like it's like it's weird to have this extra material that is like optional. <laughs> it's like if you want to know it, you can. And um, as a as a writer, it feels kind of like cheating. That's what I mean when I say it feels like cheating to like have an appendix where you're like, I'll explain it in the appendix. Don't worry about explaining it in the in the narrative itself. But you should be writing in such a way that someone doesn't need to leave the page and go look something up, right? Like you should be writing in such a way that that people can follow it without any difficulty. In my experience, it's it's always like further reading. It's not like they leave things out. It's more that like they'll mention a character that you might not know that much about and then they'll give you further context. Like you know right. who the character is. I, I guess it just comes down to the fact that like the editors maybe were like time to start cutting stuff and they were like, well, I want people to understand this stuff and maybe it comes down to just like the author wanting to have that material available. But I get what you're saying because I want a complete vision from an author like that. 
Yeah, it's kind of an older school thing. I, I don't feel like I see it as much these days, um, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I guess I haven't read a lot of like massive epics that are being written right now. Um, and I wonder if, if appendices are still a thing. I, I guess let us know, you know, how do you guys feel about appendixes? Like, you know, add us on, on social media or Discord or whatever. Uh, I'd be curious to hear people's thoughts on that, but um, we've probably spent enough time on them. But um, I guess my, my overall thought is that, like, I didn't need them to enjoy the book. And because I didn't need them, I didn't find myself going to them. Now, at the end of the book, I did read through some of it. I read through, and some of it was a little more narrative than I was expecting. Like it was, um, one of them was from uh, Leek Kynes talking about the ecology of Dune. And it was like, it was kind of interesting, but also kind of dry, you know, very kind of sciencey, but a little bit of characterization for him that maybe I could have could have liked to have more of in the book. I don't know. It was kind of odd. There are definitely the readers that love that, though, right? Like there are the readers who who want those small little details for the for the context. And I get that. But yeah, I guess it seems like neither of us are really that person that's dying yeah. for, for those. Well, and, and, and you create super fans sometimes with this stuff, right? Like this is what, you know, a lot of like Tolkien diehards love that they can get really into all this other extraneous stuff and know more than other people yeah and yeah. or like just deep dives into the appendixes yeah the silmarillion yeah. his other writings and like all this lore and like that exists for dune and some of that's in the appendixes here but there's also you know in other places and um if you really want to you could become this like dune expert who just knows all this shit um right. and that's cool right like you can create like a a space for like super fans in a way i'd be curious i mean like i think it's clear that when he was dropping this in a magazine it was it didn't have the appendices so i think it's maybe like a completion thing and it had already gotten this huge buzz and people love it and then he, they want more details so he includes some some of his notes that didn't make the cut kind of thing maybe that's an interesting thought yeah because you're right it did give, go through some revision process when it got put together and put in, into this book after it had been released in analog sequentially um and yeah maybe maybe that's the case maybe there's just kind of a summarizing like hey we want you maybe you read this first book already in analog and you're picking up the novel and you need a refresher here's a glossary yeah yeah that could have been part of it but um it's an interesting kind of little uh, artifact of, of the time this book was written but i want to yeah. give like some general thoughts about it although i want to i do want to save some for like the end of the book when we actually talk about everything that goes on yeah. but um this book for me absolutely felt like it deserves its reputation. I can see how this is foundational for science fiction in many ways, not only that, you know, in the way that it, it has led to so many other things, but also is clearly inspired by other foundational works. So it's like an important piece in the history of sci-fi. In some ways, it surprised me with its, um, you know, deep look at ecology and how thrilling it could be, the emphasis on like hand-to-hand -hand combat. There were certain things about it I wasn't necessarily expecting. All the sort of mysticism and almost like uh, magical type stuff. It, you know, it, it is kind of a sci-fi fantasy in the way that a lot of space opera is. Obviously, the most famous space opera being Star Wars, um, heavily, I think heavily inspired by Dune. And, yeah. you know, you, I, the more I think about it, the more I can see a lot of the connective tissue there. Um, so in that way, like it stands up, I thought it has um, it was kind of ahead of its time in a lot of these like family turmoil, like backstabbing, you know, politicking. Like, I think that's all really cool. It feels modern to me. Um, so in some ways, you know, pleasantly surprised. 
Um, and then, yeah, in other ways, it felt a little dated. Um, it, it, it is it relies heavily on gender and gender roles. Yeah. And um, I was surprised, like at the very end here, it really leans into that. Yeah. Paul definitely kind of defies that a bit, but also he's he's like a straight guy who gets to do that straight white guy who gets to be the one to sort of have the power of both genders. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's maybe he was being a little bit uh, envelope pushing at the time, but these days it seems almost quaint. Um, and then, yeah, there's just a lot of um, that sort of expected power fantasy, like you were talking about the, the you know, the, the boy who, who comes to power and ends up becoming the ultimate badass and gets to best everybody in single combat and is almost unstoppable, Ends up with right? All the women, yeah. All the all women, women, yeah. Them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, not everything goes great for Paul, but it mostly does. And, um, the one thing I will say, and I, and I don't know that if this is subversive as it, as it maybe Frank Herbert thought it was, but like, he is very tortured by his role. Um, it seems like he doesn't necessarily want to be this prophet figure. There's a lot of responsibility there. Um, his his ability to see the future comes with a lot of consequences for his like happiness. And it seems like Jessica really judges that. Like you know, he, I, I she's like she's mixed about his role, but that's also not super unique to the genre. Now again, this is pretty early on, so maybe it was kind of new at the time. Um, but I mean, I've definitely seen that in a lot of other places. Yeah. Did you at times have trouble like grappling with the character of Paul because of the fact that he would he would seem like the character that we know. And then other times because of this, like multiple timeline lives that he's lived thing that he'll pull out frequently and, and like make decisions based on that. He almost felt like a character that was like at some point in the not in the narrative, we lost the, the Paul that we knew and he's become like this new entity yeah. who like knows everything. And and at that point, I feel like it was tough to like grab onto the character and like um, relate to him as much, you know? Yeah. And it's I, I don't want to make this comparison too frequently, but um, we've talked about it before and I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, Bran from Game of Thrones. Um, I, I just I thought about that character and like any character who could see the future and and it's going to start to feel a bit inhuman because it's so essential part of our humanity is our inability to know what's going to happen next. Right. And so as soon as a character starts to be able to do that, um, they are going to distance themselves. And I think it's good that I felt a real connection to Jessica um that you know i really liked uh you know gurney i liked a few of these kind of side characters that i was really really taken with it helped me stay invested in a way because paul i liked him but i kind of agree he kind of becomes inhumanly good at things i agree the world and the characters overall the culture that's the, the fremen uh, like I was, I was invested in the world more than even Paul at some points, and right. and I think that that kept, like you said, kept me kept me going, uh, and and just loving the story. I want to ask you specifically as we get into the first part, um, a question. Do you want to jump into that yet, or? Yeah, I guess let's get into it because I do have more. Like I feel like I I have a lot more summing up thoughts, but it would be better to uh to really get into them after we've we've got through the meat of the story. So I'm going to divide this plot up into two chunks. Um, and I will read the first one now. Two years pass. The Baron, living on the Harkonnen homeworld, schemes to usurp the Emperor while grooming one of his own nephews, Fade Rotha, to take over the job. Meanwhile, on Arrakis, Paul has become very powerful and influential among the Fremen. 
He is both their secular and religious leader, like Kynes before him, but his powers are far greater than those of Kynes. He has a child with a Fremen woman, Cheney, the daughter of Kynes, and his mother has given birth to Alia, Duke Leto's daughter. Uh, Paul teaches the Fremen to fight using a special style called the Weirding Way, and using the advanced fighting techniques of the Bene Gesserit, one day, the Fremen discover that the Baron has abandoned his aide to Rabin, the nephew he assigned to rule over Arrakis. Paul and the Fremen make plans to raid the Arakeen capital now that Rabin is cut off from the Baron's help. Okay, so that covers a, a good chunk of this, like probably about half of what goes on here. Uh, what did you want to? What did you want to ask me first off? I wanted to ask you specifically about time skips like this because I have I have strong yeah. feelings on them and I think a lot of people have strong feelings on them. Um, but I want to hear what you think of them in general first and how this one was executed. Yeah. So two different questions, I guess. Um, in general, I am not a big fan of them. Um, I, I they can be a bit disorienting. It can feel me a little bit like it can leave me a little bit frustrated because I. It 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 detaches me from the immediacy of the narrative, and then drops me back in. And sometimes there's like a, a re onboarding phase where it takes a little while for me to get back in and, and realize what's going on now. And it kind of hand waves sometimes some stuff. Like oh yeah, he's just like way cooler now, and like now everybody loves him more. Um, however, I do think this one was executed pretty well. I didn't have as much of a diff of difficult time with it. I think the very um, omniscient POV helps with that. Um, we've, we've been getting these like snippets, um, written at some point later in the future, talking about the legend of, you know, Paul Atreides and Moadib. And, um, that already distances it some to where having a time jump feels a little more natural. So ultimately I was okay with it. And, um, I didn't have a lot of the difficulty I sometimes have. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't have, like, strong negative feelings for this one. I guess I'm yep. just kind of okay with it. What What were your thoughts, though? So, I... Uh, this is going to be a weird take, but I'm just going to... I've always stood by this. I really, really enjoy when when stories time skip. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, I think that it can be a pitfall, for sure. Yeah. I think that, like, you can... It can become a detached. And, and I think the level of difficulty of creating a time skip in your story and having it be satisfying is very high. Because you're nearly restarting the world and starting a new novel it yeah. feels like in, in in ways and so um but something I, and maybe like my background in like loving anime and i think anime tends to do time skips i think when you're invested in characters and you're invested in a world instead of having to wait for a sequel novel or something maybe a sequel novel that would never eventually comes anything like that getting a time skip um filling in things that were obviously going to happen that you could see coming to get to a point where you don't know where the narrative would splinter from there i think is more interesting in ways and i'm just a sucker for like seeing seeing these characters grow up like grow yeah. like seeing people get a little bit older i loved that like uh alia was was like older and like the the weird things that came from that and, and yeah. i can't wait to talk about that what an odd character yeah she's this two-year-old girl who has like the mind of an adult and 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 more than that she's like all seeing and she has all this knowledge and i hope so badly that we get like a full novel accurate alia in the film that's like walking i can't imagine they like could have everything. a two-year-old do it but yeah they could have someone very young so, something <laughs> figure figure out how to make it like convincing but um <laughs> get andy circus in there <laughs> yeah like mocap a child or something yeah, yeah. that would be real weird 
I just enjoyed that little weird aspect. Like I like yeah. weird shit like that. And uh, so yeah, the time skip for in this one, I I enjoyed it. I think it was well done. And uh, it, I like I said, I think it, it the stuff that was going on with the fremen. I was like, yeah, we've kind of seen this stuff before. Like he's becoming like slowly over time, he's getting more respect, his prowess. He's going to challenge the leader. He might become the leader. Yeah. And um, oh, he he definitely was going to become the leader. You could you no could feel doubt. That and like his it. relationship with Cheney, the way it was left at the end of part two. We just knew sort of where a lot of things were going. So a time skip, I was surprised. I did not see that coming when we yeah. finished our coverage last time. And, and, but uh, yeah, I was I was excited by it. And I thought it was really fun. Yeah. All right. So we, let's let's talk about some specific scenes from this section. Um, we we start off really by catching up with the Baron Harkonnen and his you know and Fade Ralpha and um, talking about Howat and like how it's like he's like clearly this guy's scheming. This Mintad is scheming to take me out, but he doesn't realize that I know that he's scheming so I can like counter scheme him. And then I know that you're scheming to take me out, but I, I'm already two steps ahead of you. And then the other guy's like, well, that's what he thinks, but I'm actually another step ahead of him. It's like, there's all this scheming and like backstabbing going on within this family. It's the scene from the princess bride where he's Which like, one? unless you think that I know that I put the poison in here <laughs> and we've switched cups and like that's that's exactly yeah. what's happening yeah it's pretty funny but like it, I mean he's also like I wrote down like just villain shit in my notes right. because he's like he's doing some real villain shit man I, I, I do you know I think it's interesting that he, Herbert tries to make both of these characters seem so capable and so yeah. like aware of what the other one's doing and using and like realizing that Hawa is like potentially using them as well to pit each other against themselves and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting idea, but like you said, it kind of starts going in circles a little bit. Where you're just like, no, you, no, you, like the Spider Man, <laughs> the Spider Man meme with like they're pointing. Like, well, and, and ultimately, like you feel like it's going to be their downfall, right? Like that can't be sustainable. But um, right, it's interesting to think like the Baron is trying to position Fade Rotha as the next ruler. Yeah, and this idea that Fade Rotha like can't wait or something like this is like I'm going to yeah. take take He's control. Like, I'm going to kill you maybe... first. He's like, slow down, man. You're going to be the next one. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Baron orders him to like go garrot the slave master and then kill all of the women in the slave pits that he's been seeing. Um, and then while that's ha- or like right at, right before that, he had killed this like um, boy who Phaedrotha had had tried to get to poison Baron, but then the Baron figured it out. But because he was helped by Howitt anyway, scheming. Right. Um and then he orders the guys who are carrying the body out to be killed as well because he didn't like the way they were carrying the body. <laughs> he was like, they did it in such a sloppy way. Kill them as well. And I'm like, that's when I was like, just villain shit. Like, just going off the fucking wall. He's sending messages to Fade Rotha at that point too, like saying like, I'm ruthless and this is how ruthless you have to be in life and all this stuff. But yeah, at the same time, still just like villain shit. And then like ordering him to like personally kill all the women that reminded me. I mean, it's not the same, but like that reminded me a bit of an old Tywin Lannister that felt like a Lannister move there. So, yeah, um, again, I can see the influence of this potentially on a, on a young George Martin. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that that's that's where this book opens. And then we we, we go over to uh, the Fremen and it's always kind of like a. I mean, it really stands out the difference. Right. You have like these backstabbers, vile schemers, and then you have this group of like where there's a lot of mutual respect and like unspoken respect and 
a lot of mysticism. They're honorable and they have customs that, that won't be broken and everything like that. I do really like the way that it feels like the Fremen are really in touch with like the natural world, like specifically Arrakis and like their respect for the makers and um, the way that the ecology of the planet works and their like intimate knowledge w- with it. Um, that's the kind, like, I really like that stuff. I think that's really cool and, and seems novel for the time to actually have in a, in a sci-fi book. But, um, yeah, I, I like that stuff definitely a ton. You know, Paul keeps talking about his terrible purpose. Um, and he's, he's having difficulty. Like he even says at one point he doesn't, he can't, sometimes he doesn't know if something has happened or not yet. Like he's, you know, a little bit unstuck in time, almost Vonnegut, right? Like he's like, has that happened already or is that is that a memory or am I thinking of something that's going to happen 20 years from now and like all this stuff yeah which is like what would happen if you had to c- contend with all those timelines and all those different ways like and I think that's cool to sort of like nerf him a little bit instead of him <laughs> just being like all powerful yeah. unbeatable although again person. every time he gets into like a really significant moment he's like there's a lot of uncertainty and I can't see the outcome of this yeah. like every time and I'm like okay well I mean like yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's to keep the narrative tension there, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Although I started thinking of it, of it more like he's calculating probabilities or something. Like he's this is almost his mentat self. Although there's definitely some mysticism going on there, where it's it's a little bit more than that. But if if it's if it's almost like I'm just calculating probabilities of outcomes, um, and, the, and if there's like a moment of big chance, then I guess I can kind of see that like that's why he struggles to see what's going to happen next because it. It, it depends on the outcome of this event. Well, yeah, some of the time he gets straight up visions yeah. of the future. And then other times he's, he seems like, like you said, like calculating, trying to figure that out. But you were uh, you were right in your in your memory of Paul riding a, a sandworm. Yeah, not just Paul, but a lot of the Fremen. Apparently this, yeah. they have these hooks and they I like the I love the way it was described. You know, they, 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 they latch into these like there's these sections on the worms and then they kind of like open it up and then when it's open the worm like won't go into the sand because i guess sand would like pour into its like right body so it's like it stays on the surface when that happens which was kind of my question of like how do they yeah uh how does it not go under but that's how and i like that there's an explanation and then um there there was a funny part where uh paul was writing um next to uh what's his name the uh stilgar Stilgar, thank you. I actually really like Stilgar. I'm just bad with character names. Um, so, so it's like him and Stilgar are up on the back of a worm, like having a conversation. And like I forgot they were on a worm until at the end. He's like, "All right, we better hop off this worm and go see what's going on." And I'm like, "Wait, what?" Like, oh, they're still on the worm <laughs> while they're having this conversation. I would think it would be kind of hard because it's described as the grandfather of the desert, the biggest worm they've ever of course. seen. I mean, of course, Paul had the biggest worm they've ever seen. Of course he did. Yeah, and then he has the biggest storm later. Yeah, it's his storm. Um, but I mean, like, hey, hey, we're here to see big worms, right? Like, that's part right. of the appeal of this. I want to see the biggest worm. It's definitely very cool, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, you know, as a writer, you're like, yeah, I want to show off the biggest worm. Why not? Of course. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then uh, there's like a weird thing where Paul decides he's going to go drink this water and try and, like, understand the, the the power that his mom has. And he ends up getting paralyzed by it. And then we get finally some interactions between Chaney and Jessica and I wanted to ask you, like, does this, I mean, I, I might be forgetting, but this feels like one of the more significant moments for Chaney, um, where she gets to, like, work with Jessica and figuring out what's going on with Paul. Um, she does some more stuff later, but, like, what were your overall thoughts on Chaney as a character? Like, was this enough for you? Like, 
What do you think? Yes, um, but I can understand if, he, if she wasn't for others because I think it, she really was a character that was built up. She, again, I mentioned in the first episode she's like capable, she's cool, she does these cool combat. She at one point like fights somebody in place of Paul because it's like this like threat. She's a threat that you have to get through just to get to um, Paul, our main character, like the leader of the Fremen. Um, you know, I like that stuff about her, but at the same time, it does feel like she was built up to be like this like badass native woman who the, you know, who the white man woos and then yeah. and then it's like able to have, and, and have the, her. And the a, time jump like does a lot of work in selling the relationship, right? It's like, oh yeah, they right. have a kid now. The kid, yeah, that becomes a big connection and, and a big connecting point. I, I mean, overall, I like the character. Like I'm excited to see the, the like changes that might be made in the adaptation to make her even more significant. But um, this idea that like there's like a parallel between Lido and Jessica and Paul and uh, Cheney in the concubine thing and and like how that how that'll all work out uh near the end and i I don't know overall it's you know it told me on the character i enjoyed reading sections with her so if that if that tells you that i like the character then yes yeah It, it seems like her arc is sort of winning over jessica's um affection and approval mm-hmm. and then she kind of assumes a jessica like role like you're hinting at there at the end that's something but um for me it's not enough um, and I, I want more from this character. I think there's a lot of potential here, and I think we're going to see a lot of the biggest changes surrounding this character is my, my guess, because there's a lot of potential to explore the relationship between her and Paul. There's a lot of great uh, opportunities for interesting scenes in selling us on their romance, um, selling us on the idea that... Um, she would actually be okay with him coming in and sort of becoming the leader of her people um, and, and, and end up having her approval. Like, as he's proving himself to everyone else, he also is proving himself to her. And I wish that that more personal angle was explored a little more. And I, I think it will be in the movie. That's my suspicion. I'm sure, yeah. I have so, a feeling as well. Yeah. So while I, I get what you're saying, like, I like the character, like, in principle, I just... I want more, and I think that we're going to get more in a, in a modern adaptation. Yeah. That's my guess. I do want to talk about something you mentioned, the relationship between Jessica and Chaney, uh, and specifically with this scene. The, the shift in Jessica uh, comes from almost desperation, right? Like, yeah. this, like once Paul's in this coma, she tries everything, nothing's working, and then she, like, summons Chaney. And, like, it's, it's interesting, too, because she, like, tricks Chaney into thinking Paul summoned her. Yeah. Um, and then that is like the way that their relationship becomes like forged by fire because like there's a there's a something that's going on that's a problem and they come through it together and I think that that's what ultimately sells Jessica on Cheney and Cheney on Jessica yeah. to be like a family to see her as a mother like she talks yeah. about now now and, and that kind of raises another issue though because you know sure yeah they bond over their mutual love of Paul but it's like the the Be- the Bechtel test or whatever right a little bit right like they're not having a, they don't really have a conversation just between the two of them as two human beings, it's it's kind of more about Paul all the time. And I, I, I like the idea of Jessica and her having friction, um, but I want to see that separated out a little bit from the relationship to Paul and um, maybe just them explore their the way they could interact with each other as people. Um, so I'm also excited for that one in the movie, and I hope that that, uh, that, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I... I- I have a predict that all of these things will be done well, but we'll, we'll, we will see the movie soon. Yeah, I hope so. You know, yeah, I hope so. Um, so Paul gets 
to join up with Gurney again. Um, that was a cool kind of uh, reunion, right? Um, he's he's with these smugglers, and the Fremen are like badasses who come out of the desert and start taking people out, kill a bunch of his men, and then they're like, wait, 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 don't kill this guy. Oh, stop killing people. It's actually, he's a friend. <laughs> kind of funny. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was all cool, and like um, the reveal that Paul is still alive and that he's been changed so much by the desert. And, and now all of a sudden the like mentor, you know, becomes the mentee a little bit, right? Like he has to learn from Paul. Well, it's yes. For to, as far as the Fremen culture is concerned, but also like who is more capable now? Like he was the teacher who was like, you know, training him to be this capable warrior and all this stuff. And now Paul is like clearly the dominant one in this situation. And I think that it's so satisfying because it's something we've been waiting on from the beginning of the novel. Everything from the death of Leto till now, we've been waiting for these people to see Paul as the as Leto, basically to see him in the same light as the, the like, you know, seemingly graceful, like merciful leader who would do the right thing and that kind of thing. And it seems like Paul is kind of filling that role, but I like how he plays with it here at the end. Yeah. I mean, are you talking about with the Fremen or with with Gurney himself? Gurney and like Leto's men, the way that they view Leto's Paul, men. yeah. Now, uh, like after you know, thinking he was dead this whole time, and then seeing that he's like come into his own in this other culture and has become even more powerful because of his connection to the planet and and uh, you know the Bene Gesserit power, the Mentat stuff that they taught him, everything. I did like the uh, the conceit of he when he finds out that Jessica's still alive is like, oh, that, you know, that traitorous witch is still alive. Right. I'm going to get her. And th and then that leads to a exciting scene where he basically sneaks up on her and, you know, gets a knife on her and is like, I'm going to kill you. I know you, you know, like, don't speak because I know your words have power. Um, and he's getting ready to kill her. And then Paul comes in and, they're, you know, they have the tense conversation where, <laughs> Paul has to talk him down and like try and provide proof that like no no she wasn't the traitor um and then it leads to kind of a cool moment where Jessica feels she feels sad about what Paul has become and like how he has to behave now and that's what mm -hmm. kind of carries through and the way she feels very conflicted about her own son um and she feels yeah she feels sadness for what he has to do yeah. yeah, one of my favorite things about this, too, was the moment when we get the like she at least Jessica gets the revelation that she'd been like putting on a strong face and trying to hide her grief from losing Lita. Paul tells Gurney that he's seen Jessica like weep at night and the, like the grief that she's had and all this stuff yeah. that she didn't know that he had seen. And it was interesting to see Jessica like realize like, oh, my God, he he's observant. Of course, he's perceptive enough to know this whole time what I've been going through. Yeah. And he, you know, he's been just like keeping that inside. And I don't know. I, I thought that was a good like moment yeah. for her to realize what Paul th is like, where he is and what he's been thinking this whole time. And for Paul to see, sort of show that. And it's important, too, uh, because I think this is the moment that pays dividends later where we see her decide that her love for her son and her wanting his happiness it's going to supersede any sort of like Benny Gesserit plans that might be in store for him as he becomes this prophesied figure that she's like been afraid he's going to actually be. She has to come to grips with like, she, he is actually this prophesied figure, um, which is like, I'm not going to say it because it's difficult to pronounce, but Hotterock or something, which so it's two words. Anyway, um, <laughs> you want to, you want to take it's a stab like at it? Uh, uh, let me find it and then I'll say it. Quidditch? 
Hadrick. Quiz. <laughs> Quidditch hat trick. <laughs> yeah, it, that's what it is. <laughs> Quizic Hatterock. That's my best attempt at it. It's something like that. I think, no, I think that's what it is. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Is we'll it? Go with that. Okay. I think so. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's something like that. And that's this prophesied figure that he is. And um, as she realizes, okay, if he's this, this person... There's been tons of plots and plans from the Bene Gesserit over the years for this person. But she realizes in this moment, that doesn't matter. All I want him is to be happy. And um, later on, that we'll, we'll see that. Yeah, We talked last week and maybe even in the first episode about how she seemed like she was going to be this antagonist. Like potentially like she was going to be a force against our main character. And I think, yeah, it was cool intrigue to the story. But this is the moment where Herbert reveals like, no. This is how she she feels going forward. Yeah. Okay. Upon discovering the power of the Fremen, the Emperor himself comes to Arrakis, along with his Sardukar and the Harkonnens. The Fremen attack the Emperor, quickly dismantling his spaceships while destroying the Sardukar. In the battle, Aaliyah kills Baron Harkonnen, and Paul's young son dies in a raid. Paul demands that the Emperor step down. Paul asks to marry the Emperor's daughter, Irulan, so that he may become the new emperor. Fadratha challenges Paul, citing the right of vengeance, and Paul kills him in a duel. Powerless now, the emperor agrees to Paul's demands, and Paul becomes the new emperor. Okay, so that's a very broad overview of what happens in this chunk. Um, but yeah, that's the rest of the book, and um, let's back up. They blow up the wall um in the in the town which i was very excited to see happen because we've mentioned before we played this uh board game um and one of the things you can do is blow up the shield wall <laughs> in the board game which like removes the protection of this city from the from the storm um that like circles the globe and i thought it was fun that this is like something that exists in the game but is right out of the book because they they do it here yeah, when it was brought up, I was like, oh, yes, awesome. <laughs> and it also felt very like Star Wars to me a little bit, you know, take down the shield and then you can attack the, the forces. And yeah, that tends to be a thing the shield in Star Wars. wall. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we get this big attack where they go in and um, take over. But to me, it was a little anticlimactic. Like it, it felt was it because it happened so quickly. It felt kind of rushed almost like it. It, yeah. um, it does happen very quickly. It's like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. OK, it's happened now. We're in the throne room. Paul's already won. This section that we're talking about right now might be the last like two chapters or something like that. Yeah, it's pr it, yeah, it's kind of short. I agree. And it, like it, fe it felt like kind of rushed, like everything else had taken its time in this book. Yeah. I wish he had taken his time a little more here um, because a lot of this is really great, really interesting. And I wanted to see a little more like, I don't know, just show me some more scenes. Um, yeah. And it the, what we do get is good. I just wanted more of it, I guess. Right. It's still satisfying. That's yeah. how I felt about it. It's still satisfying. I just expected a little more with how massive the story was overall. Um, I thought we were going to get into space battles for sure. I thought we were going to like, which almost happened. But I was like, I kind of don't want to leave a rocket, so I get it. Well, and we just kind of get summarized. We're like, yeah, the Fremen, you know, killed him, and uh, now and Paul won. And it's like, oh, like I want to see some like actual warfare. I don't know, like, and like maybe that pushes it more into military sci-fi, and he didn't want to do that. But there's a lot of other military like combat. Well, sequences. just combat scenes, yeah, combat. So I think I think there was space for more here, and and then there's also no epilogue, no, uh, and not just epilogue, no like denouement, like this the the story ab kind of abruptly ends. Right. 
There's like a falling action, but there's no like conclusion almost. Yeah. It's like the falling action is the conclusion at the same time. Yeah. Seemingly. Um, but so it's a couple things that I want to rattle off. So it's originally mentioned that Paul has created this like s- killing commando force that are like yeah. amazing warriors and stuff. And because they're built up basically by the hardship of Arrakis mixed with Paul's training. Yeah, so the weirding way. Training, the yeah. weirding way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I thought that was fun and I really enjoyed that. And just this idea that he's built up so quickly built up. Let's see a scene of them in action, right? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. But they, we do see the scene in the cave where like they take out the, the Sardaukar. Yeah. And like free them to give the message to the emperor, to the baron or whatever, to the emperor. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. But, uh, yeah, some more some more combat would have been enjoyable. I, I do so. want to talk a little bit more about Stilgar because we just briefly mentioned him. Yeah. Uh, I love him as a character and I love that that there was there wasn't the predictable moment where Paul had to defeat him or whatever. I love that he was like this leader that was like, let's both lead and like I'll be the this leader and you'll be that kind of leader. And and like he's like, why would we fight amongst ourselves? And it's cool because he's like changing the ways of the Fremen. And but at the same time, you know. Yeah. Same, and, some and, white guy and, coming and, in to, to change the culture, I guess, is not the greatest. <laughs> of looks. I mean, yeah. It is what it is in this point. Um, <laughs> I did like the gurney and him had like it developed kind of a mutual respect because they realized, I think, that they both operated in a similar way in Paul's life as these like kind of mentor figures. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I thought it was cool that like, I don't know, they had this kind of a mutual respect for each other. It seemed like we absolutely have to talk about Alia. Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned her a little bit earlier, but yeah, I mean, this scene. Uh, so she's captured. The, the like big motivating thing here, which I thought was going to make Paul lose his mind, is the the death of his son. Yeah, which it's al- it almost doesn't get enough weight. It's way off the page. It's like it's yeah. like oh, by the way, a casualty was your son, and then yeah. he like it cuts to the next scene. And I mean, I, I guess he's like deadly calm and like you know, really hyper-focused, and it seems like that's the cause, like, you know, that led to that, but yeah, I don't know. I, we don't see any grieving. Well, Cheney's reaction, and she's giving giving water, giving yeah. to, to the dead, which was like a big moment. I felt that, you know, that hit yeah. pretty hard for me. But yeah, he's, of course, he's kind of removed at this point. Like, we've talked about Paul's kind of like this, mil- like, he's got so many bigger picture things going on that, like, he's like, He's like, there will be other children, and and like you're like, fuck. I wonder if that, yeah, yeah, that was kind of a rough thing to say. Yeah, there'll be other kids. We're not gonna replace them, but there'll be more. If, yeah, but he's like, he's in the future now, so maybe if you're like a future being, that's how you would feel. But like, right. I wonder if we're gonna get this in the movie because this is this is that's pretty heavy. Have a child die like that? Maybe uh, this this there's I think there's no question that this stuff here at the end, this final battle, isn't in the first movie. You don't think that's okay. just my yeah. Well, I'll get into my prediction more of like yeah. where I think the cutoff is, but I don't think we're getting this this final yeah. battle and go- showdown in the in this first movie. I was happy to see Gurney got to be the one to pull the trigger on the blast. Um, that was yeah. I think kind of his revenge moment because he gets denied it later. So at least he had yeah. the moment to blow the blow the wall and really fuck over the Har- Harkonnens, right? Yeah, and the Emperor too. Yes, but Alia specifically is captured when uh, his when Paul's son dies, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's so fucking funny to see this like four-year-old with she's the two. baron and the emperor she's no two. she's no two years have passed right no she was or, a baby at two years so she's only she's two? two i thought she was older than that she's literally a two-year-old toddler who talks like an adult i could have sworn she all right she she's two years old uh which is even wilder yeah the other people that are sort of in the know like other bene Gesserit and stuff are like this is a demon i can't believe that this this person exists and yeah. this is such a travesty against like life and uh 
we get the scene with the emperor and the baron and she's just like outsmarting them the entire time it's she's like at every turn they're standing like, up the to them yeah they're, yeah they're like you how dare you do this and she's like i don't answer to you fucker <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and the bene Gesserit, like like the emperor's bene Gesserit's like talking to like saying that she's like in her mind and she's like yeah. manipulating her, yeah. her, her memories and stuff and Pretty wild stuff. She is yeah. super crazy. I, I mean, to, in an eventual later novel, it would be super crazy to hear like what Alia ends up doing. Oh, I'm clearly. sure. I'm sure we do. She seems like a yeah. character who we're going to explore more of in the future. Um, she also gets to kill the Baron, which is an awesome moment. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if it was going to happen. She poisons him, and then I I thought about how with the Gomjabar too with the Gomjabar. And I thought about how it is actually really um, satisfying to have a child be the one to kill him because we have seen him turn his violence and his, you know, depravedness, you know, against children throughout yep. the book. So uh, this, it, you know, is kind of his just desserts. And not to mention it's her grandfather. Yeah. Which she doesn't bat an eye about that. She don't care about that. She's like, yeah, I killed grandfather. He needed to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just yeah. overall very weird and awesome. Yeah, I have I literally wrote down Elia talking shit here. <laughs> like she's she's like not having any of it to the emperor. And the emperor is funny, right? Like he's very um he's not like he's not present for very much and when he is there like he can't believe what's happening. It seems like he can't process it cuz he's like I am so far above this. How dare they do this? Um he's so he's so like pompous. Um and then yeah, he gets bested in, in a way that's really satisfying, I guess. Um, I, I yeah. wanted more, and of course, this will be another factor that didn't play a huge part in in all of the stuff in this first novel. But the the spacing guild I've found to be very interesting. The fact that obviously they are like main drive is the spice, but then they won't get involved enough to like be the holders of the spice. They they don't won't just like take the planet. They're like the middlemen, but then they're also like completely addicted to it. Um, interesting stuff with with them and and overall that's like obviously the the leverage that paul needed was was made possible with the spacing guild yeah and then here we come to the to the duel um they're 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 all they're like he paul's laying out the law he's like this is how things are gonna go oh wait there's a harkonnen hiding in your group um bring him forward it's fade rotha and uh fade rotha's like i challenge you to combat vengeance duel and he's like, well, all right, let's do it. Um, and then everybody tries to talk him out of it. They're like, don't do it. This is dangerous. But he's going to do it. That's what you're talking about with Gurney saying, like, no, don't do yeah, it. Yeah, everybody. Like, me, like Jessica, like um, a, a Cheney. I think everybody tries to talk him out of it. But he's like, no, yeah. I'm going to do this. But but Gurney specifically was allowed, was said to, he was like, you, you'll get your Harkonnen revenge or whatever. Yeah, let me let me kill him because he he wanted to be the one to duel him, but. which is a good reason. But I thought it was cool that Paul was like, "No, like this is my my time." Yeah, to shine. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, a little pat on the back. I did predict this one. Um, didn't remember it, but you know, it to- totally lines up when we're when we're exploring someone's you know epic dueling ability in a, in a you know extended sequence, and then we had just seen Paul be like this master duelist, and it's like, okay, of course yeah. these guys are gonna fight, and they do. And I said, like, in, in the episode that there was there was like a clear parallel between the two. Like he was the Harkonnen version of of Paul. So it was like clear that that was always going to come to come to happen, I would say. Yeah. And, and he's um, and he's got the poison blade. Right. So he's got yeah. he's got tricks. You know, he's got the soporific. It is cool. He's bigger. How, he's bigger and stronger, big and strong. And yeah, he talks a lot, whereas Paul's like quiet and doesn't take the bait. Um, I did like that Paul is able to like metabolize and like alter the chemical makeup of the of the poison itself 
or at least how his body interacts with it. Well, that's the thing. So Jessica, Jessica did that with the water, right? Mm-hmm. Before, and then he did it also with the water, I think, to like come out of the coma or like he did it like sometime around that time. Yeah. He like drank a drop and he got paralyzed for three weeks and then he wakes up and he's like, yeah, I drank the water. That's what happened. And he's like, here, let me show you. And he like splashes more in his mouth and everyone freaks yeah. out. And he's like, no, 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 I'm good with it now. <laughs> it's very- I changed it. I changed it. <laughs> so yeah, it's a cool power, cool ability. I, I do think that it, the restraint with the mystical powers makes the story pretty grounded, sci- more grounded sci-fi. I do like the intrigue of having like the, ooh, like. Some there's some forces that are unexplained, very force like. There's yeah, but it's not the force, right? Nobody's nobody's no. nobody's force choking anybody. Nobody's levitating stuff like that, you know. Yeah, so so I I can see how like I don't know George Lucas decided to really up the ante with the force magic, but um you know there is some similarities, I, I you know in the way it works. I can see that. Right, and then there's like the whole good and evil thing that felt like the Sith and the Jedi kind yeah. of ideology with like the well, and, it, and I guess it's not quite as direct good and evil, but it was interesting. So we were talking about the gender thing that this gets into here, where it's like uh, women give and men take yeah. thing, and the, the way that they can't they like can't live without one another, but they coexist, and like the way that they they give and take in the universe. And I thought that was very dated. Yeah, but agreed. You know, that's what he wanted to go with. Yeah, and you know we're gonna get into more gendered stuff when we get to Wheel of Time. That's one of my criticisms of that series. So you know, look forward to that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it works okay. And like, ultimately, I think this duel is a is a thrilling sequence to end on. Um, and I think it was well written. Um, I liked the kind of blow by blow was was seemed well choreographed to me. I you know I I felt invested without being like it wasn't too overly done um because you can kind of overwrite a duel sometimes i think um and yeah it's a fine line to walk and 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 of course some of that's subjective but i I liked it yeah there was the moment when i think he like created acid or something and put it on the blade because he like he was like trying to fuck with fade rotha because fade rotha was using poison and he was like all right well i'm gonna make you think that i'm poisoning you too and then he's like oh he's a cheater he's poisoning (laughs) no 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 just acid fuck you yeah that was funny um, and then, and then uh, basically, Jessica gave him the code phrase for like how to kill him, right. and, or like paralyze him so that he could win. And he's like, "I'm not going to use it." And then, so like through his pride, he he's not going to use it. And then the thing he ends up doing is yelling, "I'm not going to use it," or "I'm not going to say it," or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that like distracts him enough to where he ends up getting the better of him. So it's kind of funny because like him announcing that he's not going to use it is the thing that yeah. is, helps him win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they divvy up the, the the spoils, basically, right? Like, uh, Paul's like, I'm the emperor now. Emperor, you're going to go live on your on your prison planet um, where, you know, it sounds like everything is really fucking rough. I think we saw somewhere that, like, 60% of the people who go there die. Um, however, they're also yeah. going to, like, supposedly make it nicer over time. I don't know how quickly that'll yeah. happen, but... Um, yeah, I mean, we see seize control. The Fremen are going to remain sort of like their own thing who are like not sort of held by a lot of the rules. Um, and then, yeah, he's going to take on this princess as his new wife mm-hmm. um, and as as sort of a political move to, to establish him as the emperor. And um, Cheney is, you know, a, a bit upset about that. But then we get him sort of like tell her like, Oh, I'm never gonna have like a moment of uh, warmth towards her. I'm never going to look at her as anyone other than like a, a political piece. And yeah, and what I say yeah. to that is, 
Sure. Okay. <laughs> sure you will. Like, we'll see. We'll see. And I'm sure in future novels, there's a lot of, like, uh, tension brought about by that whole relationship yeah. there. But then again, I don't know. Maybe maybe he stands by it. I don't know. But, I, I mean, I, also, there is kind of a revelation because this is the woman who is writing a lot all of, the... if not all, of the, like, the things that uh, lead off every chapter. These, like, historical looks at him. So yeah. and then we get Which a reference totally to changes where, the context of that. Yeah. Totally different context. Like if we were to go through and read them now, totally because I had no idea for for a little while. I don't know that we knew who that was. Yeah, exactly. No, while. I we, I had no idea. And um, she does say, um, I think it's Jessica says that like, oh, so she has like a literary uh, interest. So hopefully that'll keep her keep her happy. And it's like, okay, so I guess that's the nod to like how she why she's gonna write all these histories down. Um, that, that was that was what I took from that. We did jump over something that I think we got to talk about, and okay. that's um, uh, Hawat. Yeah, he's been poisoned at this point, so he's like already dying. And I guess he was the Baron scheming once again. Th- uh, had had you know thought that he would come and kill him um, at a revenge, uh, seeking revenge, but uh, he does not. Yeah. <laughs> and the the Emperor's like kill Paul, but Hawat doesn't kill Paul, obviously, because he was always loyal, which we knew. We, of course, like, like all of Leto's men were going to be honorable to the very end. Yeah. Well, and then, and then the Emperor also orders, um, this, uh, Count Fenring and tells him, yo, all right, go kill him now. Because apparently this Fenring is, a, is someone who Paul has never been able to really see in his visions. And so mm-hmm. he's like, maybe this is the guy who kills me. But they have this like kinship because I guess Fenring was almost the prophesized figure that that he is, but but he was like sterile or something, so that's why he's not actually it. But he has a lot of the same powers. Um, but and again, a character who does not feel fleshed out as much as I would have thought definitely seems like yeah, next book or something. This yeah. is one of those times where. He- you would want something from the appendices or something or yeah. Well, I'm like, this is a character they're going to explore more in future books. It has to. Yeah. It's very interesting. The prophecy, they did this in Harry Potter as well. This idea of a prophecy with multiple people, maybe being the prophesized person. Um, and, and you know, that's an interesting thing to think about and to explore because it gives for one use, there's like this brotherhood or kinship between the two of them. And count Fenring is like, no, I'm not going to kill him. And, um, and then I think the emperor like slaps him in the face and Fenring is like, we were friends once, so I'll forgive you for that. Because clearly like going forward, Fenring is going to have a relationship with Paul in some way. And, you know, I'm sure Paul could do whatever he wanted to the emperor ultimately if he wanted to so, yeah. say like, that's your one chance, like chill <laughs> out, like time for you to stand down. Yeah, it was funny. It was like, you get one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but that's it. Um, yeah, pretty funny. Um, so... Yeah, that's I mean, that's the end of the book. And like I said, like all this goes down and then we get Jessica sort of um, say to say to Cheney, like, oh, I know you're upset about this, but you're actually going to be the concubine. And much like I was the favorite concubine that could potentially be like a really good role for for you where you're going to have the real power and everyone will remember us as the true wives. Um, and so they kind of bond over this. It, it did seem like kind of a strange place to end like it was supposed to be like almost a heartwarming like you get to be the concubine but everyone will know you're the real wife and that's the way the book ends i'm like i don't know that that really landed for me but um yeah so so final thoughts on the book you know i want i want to talk about mine but i'm curious yeah did this book live up to all the hype how do you feel about it is it one of your favorite books you've ever read or is it more just like was it pretty good like what, what were your thoughts 
So yeah, I kind of already mentioned it definitely lived up to the hype for me going into it. I had a little bit of doubt. I was like, is this will this hold up to this amount of acclaim? To me, it absolutely did. The world is fascinating. I wanted more of that. I wanted more of uh, the many different cultures that we're hearing about, like the different worlds, things things that are happening off world, the, the political machine that we see that's that's in motion. And then a lot of the stuff that's been being set up, right? This jihad, like that's going to happen, right? Yeah. There's no way to stop it. It seems like the prophecies that show up in Dune seem to pretty much come true, whether people push back against it or not. But it'll be intriguing to see if Paul is a powerful enough being. He's godlike at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, can he push back and change fate in a way that we haven't seen a character really do in the story so far? Um, I just really found myself taken with the world. A lot of really, really fun and, and memorable characters. Clearly a legacy story like you talked about for the past, bringing the past forward and then, and then you know, changing the future of what sci- sci-fi fantasy would be. Um, I love it. And do I think it's my favorite novel I've ever read? No. But I like it a lot. I'm a big fan of it. And uh, I can totally understand people saying that it is their favorite. Yeah. Because it does feel like this very specific perfect peak in a period of time of sci-fi fantasy and like i just see it as a i'll always see it as a beacon in a similar way to that i see something like lord of the rings lord of the rings isn't my favorite book it is one of my favorite books you know i I think i would put dune up there with like one of my favorite sci-fi fantasy stories for sure i was it was that fun there were things about it that i was that was i was surprised didn't land quite as as soundly as i thought they might Mm -hmm. which kind of keeps it from being like oh my favorite book unequivocal like just completely my favorite thing i've ever read yeah um but yeah overall really enjoyed it um and then i'll talk predictions after you after we hear your thoughts yeah i'm uh so i think this book is absolutely brilliant in its world building in the scope of its ambition um in its attention to detail uh, the way Herbert explores the ecology of this planet and the way the ecology plays into the economics, which plays into the government, which plays into the religion and how the religion operates. And, and he, he's kind of cynical about it, the way that the Bene Gesserit are this sort of shadow government who are controlling things. And there's there's definitely an exploration of like, uh, I was thinking about how the Bene Gesserit, like setting up these, these uh, prophecies it is kind of reminiscent of Christian missionaries a little bit, right? Like if we go into these other countries and we have a mission where we um, pass along Christianity to them, then there is kind of a like, well, if we ever need to go back there in the future, we'll have a bunch of people who agree with us, you know, spiritually. And so that'll give us like a foothold. Um, yeah. And so I, I, he, I wonder if he was being inspired by that a little bit and, so there's a lot of real world stuff you can start looking at. Um, Paul Atreides here is definitely kind of a white savior, um, but he also is someone who appreciates the um, the culture that he's come into, and he um, he means well, and in the sense that like I'm not saying white savior trope isn't problematic because it is. Um, but it, it kind of comes from a place of like well-meaning <laughs> um, and, and that's how I kind of feel here. Like it, it, he's well-meaning. Um, so it's interesting, right? It, it does. It, it's not without its problems, but again, written in 1965 and, and I'm, and in many ways I'm kind of astounded at how well it holds up for being that old. Um, 
and yet uh, it, it really does, you know, hold a lot of really cool things. Um, ultimately, though, like, is this book one of my favorite novels? No. Um, is it one of one of the best sci-fi novel books I've read? I think so. I, I'm not as I'm not as well read in sci-fi. It's definitely up there. Is it the best sci-fi novel read I've read? I don't think so. Um, I, just for my personal taste, I don't think so. But it's got a lot going for it. And in sort of a selfish way, it is, I think, an excellent book for me to be reading right now as I'm revising my um, underwater Earth novel. Um, because the, the attention to detail with the ecology and the way that Herbert doles out information and picks and chooses what is important to talk about um, it's definitely a good lesson, right? Like it's, it's an example of how it can be done. Not saying that I have to do it the same way, but it's like, okay, this is the way somebody did it and did it well. Um, and there are lessons to be learned there. So as a writer, I think it is a very interesting novel, especially right now for me to be reading. Um, so I like that part of it. I think I talked to you about this off air at some point, or maybe I mentioned it in one of the episodes, but like, this is, this is like our shit. Like this is yeah. the stuff that we love. Like this is the type of story that speaks to me and always has, so like to, to get that kind of story is always a massive deal. So that's why I'm going to always remember it and I'll carry Dune with me and I'll th hold it in high regard for sure. Well, and it's also I could see why people have said to me, you haven't read Dune like with like yeah. incredulous. Right. Like and I can see why, because this is the perfect overlap between epic fantasy and sci fi. Like if you're a massive epic fantasy fan and you're like wondering how to get into sci fi, I can see why a lot of people recommend Dune. Because I felt very at home with all these characters and all this unexplained terms and, you know, which is overwhelming for people who don't read a lot of epic fantasy who does this quite frequently, I think. A lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat and magic, like, you know, even if it's not, like, as direct, like, it, it, there's a lot of overlap there. And um, I, I felt very at home in that, in that sense. If I had read this when I was late teens, early 20s, I would have probably loved it even more is my suspicion. So I think we have to talk about theories going into Denny Villeneuve's film. Yeah, uh, I'll start with asking you, like any any big theories? Where do you think it'll? I think you kind of mentioned a little bit, but where do you think it'll end? How do you think that? You you seem to have an idea for where you think it's going to end, and I'd be curious to know because I feel like there's a couple of potential spots, depending on how he wants to divide up the story. But right. it does seem like it, the story will feel unfinished even more than this one does if we don't get the death of the Baron, because that's the one, like he's the, he's the big villain throughout. Um, and if he isn't dead by the end of it, I think that's going to be a clear sign that like, Oh, we're getting a sequel. It'll feel almost like fellowship in two towers. And you know, it's like, Oh, this is just part one of a longer story. I think that's exactly how it's going to feel okay. though. I think that this has always been planned to be two movies yeah. and he was like, I'm not making it unless I'm making both. So, so, so where do you think is the natural, is it the time jump? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and I, the reason I think that is because I think Denis Villeneuve sees how quick everything was in this third part. And I also think that we're probably going to see things brought in from later, later movies mm. or later books. But I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Like I have no idea with what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. I just, I just assume small things will probably be pulled in to, to give this, this, cause this story we said felt abrupt. I bet you that there's some satisfying things that happen in later novels that he can thread into the end of this to make it feel more complete as a saga and also to flesh out a lot of the stuff that seemed like maybe we flew by yeah. in the book here. In this and, third part. and if they do what I, suspect that and hope that they will do and that's focus more on cheney and paul's relationship 
I think that will that will feel more central to the story. And if by the end there she has come to accept him, and he has come to accept his role in the Fremen, that is a that is a sort of uh, narrative uh, finality enough to hang your hat on. But there needs to be some sort of climactic scene or battle, perhaps. I know we might. I feel like we're going to get the worm writing. I think that's going to happen. That would feel pretty climactic if we see him actually Isn't write that a worm. After that, it's after the it's after the break in in the book. But like, I feel like they might move that up some. Yeah, um, maybe. Because, I mean, they're going to do some stuff with that worm. We've seen it in all the trailers, right? Like, there's going to be some worm stuff. And I don't know. I just feel like that's going to happen. But maybe I'm wrong. Wasn't the fight? There's like a big fight that we liked at the end of part two. I feel like that's going to be the climactic ending. I think that like it's going to be the accepting of Paul as like their their leader at that point. Or maybe not even a duel among the Fremen. Yes. Yeah. Like I think it's going to lead up to that point. There's going to be the duel. And I guess we might see some some like some combat between the Fremen and and these uh these emperor's troops, right? Like we might see some at Sardaukar or the Harkonnens. Like we might see some skirmishes and stuff. That would be that would be also po- post time skip, but like in terms of like our book, but yeah, maybe maybe skirmishes. There's like smuggler groups that we've they've talked about a little and like bit. And like Gurney, well. like right Gurney, Gurney and him being reunited, that could be a potential end point. So maybe the yeah. start after the time jump, maybe they just move some of that up sooner and then we still get a time jump. Yeah, um, I'm also interested in whether or not they shot part I don't know. Did they start shooting it or are they going to wait and then let people get older? to like you know yeah. to start filming i'm not I don't sure know. you'll have to look into that one so we can talk about that um next week when we get to talk about this movie yeah oh my god i, I already have my tickets purchased i'm going to see it in imax early in the day uh uh gonna gonna see it and and um hopefully the you know theater won't be super packed but you know we'll see you know i'm of two minds i hope my theater is not super packed but i hope for the sake of the movie a lot of people go see the movie exactly like i wanted to i wanted to do well but i'm going at like 11:30 a.m on on a sunday so i'm hoping that that won't be a super you know popular time but who knows um but yeah man i mean i'm going to see it in imax i'm so excited because like I just like seeing movies in IMAX, you know, like I, I think I saw there's a 3D version, but I'm like, no, 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 go on 2D because I don't think this movie was made and designed to be 3D. And I just I just like IMAX as a format. And it's 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 like a con- combining going to the movies, which is an experience I love with almost like being on a roller coaster <laughs> because it's such a sensory experience. Dude, if you haven't. Um, I don't know if you would like this or not, but they have 40x showings at Regals. Yeah, and they are legitimately roller coaster rides. And something I was thinking about this came to mind. I've only seen a few of those films, and they they're like you know they're expensive, like twenty five dollars a ticket or something wild like yeah, that. You guys have some wild theaters in Orlando. Yeah. yeah, we went to one that was like quite epic when we saw I think the final Star Wars movie. Um, yeah, there's some really cool ones. Those 40x showings are interesting. You sit and it literally moves you around. The chairs move around. But the thing that I think is the cool, so like wind blows when wind's blowing yeah. in the in the film. The coolest thing is they give you scents and like other sensory things as well. Like cinnamon, imagine, man, you better smell some cinnamon when we see a yeah. sandworm. Imagine how cool that would be. How, where? So how are you gonna see it? I haven't I haven't bought my tickets yet, but I'll go see it in IMAX for sure. There's okay. no question in that. Maybe yeah. you should do a 4DX showing too, just to. I don't know. Not I've never done it for my first viewing. Oh, I guess I did it for like Beauty and the Beast. 
but I've never done it for something that I was like really, really invested in. Is, so just the screen not as good as IMAX though? So we have a few, there's like, I mean, we can go down this whole theater thing, but there's like, there's <laughs> a couple different, sorry to break the bubble for some people, but some of the IMAX that's marketed as IMAX isn't full IMAX. Yeah. So there's a, there's like IMAX and then there's like real IMAX projection, screen size, sound quality. And then there's the 40X, I don't think is like an IMAX screen or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, probably not. It's just a smaller theater with a... But uh, the the IMAX here for us is pretty nuts, and I'll probably end up doing that one. Um, yeah, this great format, like you said. The sound you can't you can't beat the sound quality too. That's the other big thing. Yeah, and it's too loud for some people, and I get it. But um, once the movie starts, like usually it's like the trailers are super loud or something, or the commercials yeah. at the beginning. But once the movie starts, you know, you get some real deep bass. But otherwise, it's good. Anyway, if it wasn't clear, we're we're obviously excited for the movie, ready to go watch it. Um, I hope you are too. I hope this is a movie you're all going to see. We want to support this kind of science fiction being made. Um, It'll be on HBO Max as well, same day, which I feel I'm conflicted about, but it will know, be there. Yeah, if, 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 yeah and if you're unvaccinated, you know, obviously stay safe, watch it at and, home. And also get vaccinated. And also, if you can, some people can't. Yeah, um, yeah, so, true. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, if, yeah, please do if, if you know, you're on the fence about it for some reason. I don't know. I, I doubt any of our listeners are, but maybe people surprise me. Um, it's safe. Do it. We've all done it. We're fine. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I hope we all support this movie because like, I am not a hater of Marvel, but I absolutely acknowledge that it has, it dominates the industry right now. And in some ways you could say it's keeping the industry afloat, but in other ways you could say it's like suffocating. And one of the things I want to see is I want to see auteur directors coming in and making massive films that are outside of the Marvel safe cookie cutter thing that you sometimes get. Not saying that Marvel doesn't ever come out of its own stuff, but there is certain identifiable things that are very Marvel, right? And I'm I'm worried that we're moving in that direction with a lot of our blockbusters because it's safe and people know it'll sell. And I I I don't think it's this is going to be a safe movie. It's my suspicion. And I'm mm-hmm. very curious to see um, how it does. I hope it does well because I want more stuff like this. Yeah, this is what I, want. I think we're just optimistically like I almost always am. I think we're in a good spot. I think we're going to have plenty of good films from from Marvel. I think we're going to have plenty of auteur filmmakers continue to make big films. Um, I think what we're what we're not going to have anymore is mid budget films. That's yeah. a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, this is going to be so much fun and I cannot wait to see. I mean, like we said, been waiting since like one of our first projects to <laughs> yeah. see this Danny Villeneuve masterpiece. So, so wild. I've already I've already dubbed it a masterpiece because it's Danny Villeneuve. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm worried we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed. But yeah, I hope it I hope it lives up to everything. One way or another, we'll be honest about it. I just, you yeah. know, I'm excited because I love that guy. Yeah. Me too. Um, so I did want to say, if you would like to support this podcast, we are on Patreon. And on Patreon, we are going to be posting very soon a poll for our upcoming quarterly project. And it will end up being the project we do right after Dune. Um, so I actually got to get this poll posted very soon. Um, I don't even know for sure what's going to be on it. Um, but if you would like to be able to vote on our next project, join up our Patreon because that's where you're going to want to be to be able to vote. Um, and you can directly influence what we will cover next. Um, so yeah, we'd love to have you on there. Patreon.com slash ink to film. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider helping us out with a rating or review on Apple podcasts or whatever podcast player you use that allows that or leave a comment or like our YouTube videos, anything like that. We appreciate it. And it does really help the podcast grow. 
Absolutely. And uh, connect with us on social media. We are at Ink to Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also join the Council of Inklings on Facebook, which is our group on there where we share a lot of news and, t- and uh, that kind of stuff. And you can join our Discord, which has been growing a little bit, been getting more active. Um, very fun. It's it's probably the most intimate kind of conversations I've been able to have with people, um, kind of get to know people a little bit more, get to know some of our listeners. I've been loving that. Um, and if you'd like to join that, just let us know anywhere on social media, and I'll send you a link. You'll use that link to join it. Um, it is now open to all listeners who, who want to be in there, not just patrons. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Nothing left to do but to, to start our thumpers up and wait for our worms to arrive so we can ride them off into the fucking sunset, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> ride them off to the theater. <laughs> if we walk out of sync, they won't even show up. You so have to that. walk without the rhythm. Yes. So it doesn't attract the worm. We did mention that song last week. That is called Weapon of Choice by Flat, Fat Boy Slim. Uh, go listen to it. Uh, watch Christopher walk in, fly around, and dance in the music video. It's pretty entertaining. I watched it during the edit of last episode. Did you? I was like, let me go check it out again. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect, man. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, that'll be another good way to prepare. Um, man, this has been fun. I can't believe we're at the end of the book now. Um, what a what a wild ride it's been. Uh, but there's a little bit more to come and oh yeah we're hoping to have a have a special guest on so pay attention to that and until next time keep adapting